Hello, this is Father Kelly. Good to be with you all once again this evening, taking a break from looking at liturgical goods websites to record this. Not thinking of anything for the sanctuary at St. Eugene's at the moment, thinking about college student stuff, maybe rectory chapel. Anyways, um, it's possibly the last night to record from the Holy Land because tomorrow is day eight, day nine rather. This is day eight. Tomorrow's day nine. But we go to all of our events, to our things, our places tomorrow, and then have dinner, and then go to the airport and get on the plane, and begin a 27-hour trip to the airports from Tel Aviv, Israel, to Washington Dulles International Airport, to Houston International, to Oklahoma City. So pray for me for that, because that's going to be brutal, and is not likely to include uh, anything, any time rather, to sit down with a laptop and a microphone and tell you guys about day nine. So um, maybe when I get back to Weatherford, I can do that, uh, but I may not. So I'll look ahead at the notes and tell you about tomorrow too, even though it hasn't happened yet, uh, give you some, at least what I think might happen. So today though, day eight, we got on the bus at 9 a.m., which I should have been able to sleep in. If you've noticed, other mornings began at 6.30 or 7 or 8, 8 o'clock or 4.15 sometimes. But at 9 o'clock, I should have had plenty of time to get a full eight hours of sleep. But no, I'm almost literally incapable of doing that, it seems like, because I was up until 12.30 or 12.45 uh, doing stuff. I mean, mostly recording yesterday's and posting things, but also, or rather trying to, but also because I had a cup of coffee at dinner after the dessert, and that's just what happens. Uh, I woke up at 7.30 this morning, uh, or 7 o'clock even, plenty of time to get around and get to the bus by 9. And then I woke up again when the housekeeper knocked on the door at 8.30. Uh, surprise! So, praise God the housekeeper came when she did, thinking the hotel room was empty for the day, uh, because otherwise I might have missed the bus. And it's a good thing she came and woke me up, because... It was a pretty great day, and I would have hated to have missed it, or you know, at least been delayed for it. So what we did today, we went into Bethlehem, the city of Bethlehem, which is uh, obviously much bigger now than it was the time of Christ. Uh, when Jesus was born, it was just a little, little, little village, um, but now it has become much larger, obviously. Um, but it's got some interesting things about it. Um, one thing I'll say at the beginning, I do not like Turkish coffee, but I do like Palestine, which is the area that it's in. So we're coming, we, we came into the bus station, parked the bus, and we're walking to the church. And there's a uh, vendor on the street selling Turkish coffee. And it's coffee ground a certain, uh, very, very, very finely, and it has the spice cardamom in it. It's a very unique flavor, and I, I see how people like it. Um... The, the tour guys, hey, Father, you want a cup of coffee? Because I had said earlier that, to him earlier that I wanted, a general, in general, wanted a cup of coffee because due to my late start, I hadn't gotten a chance to have one. He says, no, 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 I don't really want it. Turkish coffee, don't like it. Or Interiorly, I said that. Exteriorly, I just said no. But being the exuberant fellow that he is, very gracious, he runs ahead and buys me a cup of coffee. I mean, just like 50 shekels probably, or 50 shekel cents or however that's divided. Very cheap little paper cup of coffee, but yeah, not um, not the best. I mean, it is very good. I can I can see why it's good. It's not for me though. It's very rich, very intense. Um, I do like espresso, but this has that extra that cardamom twang to it, 
not my favorite um but i don't like the turkish coffee but i do like palestine because it has a different feel to it than the rest of the holy land well i mean galilee is pretty good but i mean compared to like jerusalem and it's perhaps in a strange way uh in a certain way because the palestinians are somewhat of an oppressed people but i'll describe it as interiorly peaceful so i don't want to get into too much of the political drama because boy is there a lot of it and i'm not even really going to take sides because again it's a mess but basically uh, the palestinians are within a wall uh involuntarily now there is some, you know, there was some, there was terrorist activity coming into Jerusalem from Palestine uh, back in the 60s, I think. So they built a wall to keep that down, and it did in fact work. So in a certain sense, the Palestinians kind of caused their this own this problem, but the Jews aren't innocent either. There's been literally centuries of back and forth. I'm not going to try to wade into that. But the situation as it is now, suppose you are uh, someone sort of neutral to all of that who just happens to live here. The experience is being trapped inside your own place. So the Jews, uh, you know, the Israelites rather, maybe better to say that, the Israelites, the Israeli government, uh, makes it very difficult for anybody to get out of, from inside the uh, this, uh, what do you call it, retaining wall. Uh, no, it's a um, protection wall, that's what they call it. So... It's very hard. There's checkpoints. There's lots of strict regulations. If you're a Palestinian who works in Jerusalem, for example, you have to get up super early in the morning, wait in a long line uh, to go into the city, into work, and then it's very difficult to come back, and you have to do that every single day. And though the wall, the separation wall, came into being probably for legitimate purposes, uh, the experience of the Palestinian side is that now it is kept in place by the Israeli government as a kind of uh, racial and cultural segregation. They want the people to stay over here, uh, separated off from society and from the rest of sort of larger Israel society, and uh, don't want to give them any opportunity. And in fact, there is um, somewhat of some suffering inside the community because they are so restricted. It's hard to go to school. It's hard to get a job. Uh, it's just, you know, it. they have all the sufferings of uh, a closed-off community, but it's closed off uh, not by their own will necessarily, but by it's sort of imposed upon them from the outside, which uh, gives the experience inside a much, much different feel than that of outside. Uh, when you're inside this Palestinian area, which is where Bethlehem is, where the church that we visited is, um, there's a sort of almost a, a peaceful camaraderie about it. Um, you know, kind of a, a losing football team mentality. Like, well, this kind of sucks. And, you know, maybe it's kind of our fault, but uh, maybe, no, not entirely. Uh, but we're in this together. And so let's kind of, you know, have a, a joyful life about that. Um, limited observation, but that's kind of the sense I got. Very, very different from the sense of being out in Jerusalem where there's there's lots of, uh, almost uh, active tension between the, the Israelis or maybe the Jews and the Muslims and the Christians, and it's this very tense environment. Uh, inside the wall, though, there is suffering 
because of the wall and because of the other political dramas that go with it, there's a sort of solidarity of suffering together that isn't present uh, in the outside area. So, uh, to sum up, I don't like the Turkish coffee they serve on the streets, but I do like Palestine. It has um, a good feeling about being in here. So we went to, in this area, the Church of the Nativity, which is the oldest church in the world. It is, you know, as you've heard me say other times, many churches were built over holy sites back in the day, but very often what happened is that uh, when Muslims or other groups who didn't like the locals came in, they would, as you do, uh, destroy the precious things of those you're conquering. So uh, most of the Christian churches in the Holy Land have been effectively leveled to the ground at some point or another. And this one, okay, it was uh, to some degree. But it, uh, the church that was later rebuilt by uh, Justinian, I believe, because, uh, again, like most churches, it was built in the 300s by um, Constantine and his mother Helena. And that church was destroyed. But then in the 600s, it was rebuilt. And that church, the 600s church, is the one that survives to this day. There's no other churches that are from the 600s still standing. And so, uh, and the reason it did survive is for a very curious reason that when the, uh, I think it was Turkish army was coming in, uh, they came in prepared to destroy the church like all the other ones. And they saw on the walls the images of the wise men dressed in Eastern uh, religious attire. And so the, I think again, Turkish general said, oh, these are our people on the wall. Let's not destroy this particular church. So they didn't. I'm sure they didn't, you know, leave it open for Christian worship, but they didn't tear it all the way down. So this church is the oldest church in the world because of this somewhat uh, quirky instance of architectural design. As we come in through the Door of Humility, which is a very narrow doorway, so you must stoop down to get in. There used to be a much bigger door, uh, you know, like 30 feet high, 20 feet, 20 foot wide door. But then by the Crusaders, that was blocked in a little bit, probably for military purposes, for defense purposes. And then even later, another group made it even way smaller than that, again, for defense purposes. So now it's, what was a, you know, 30 foot high door is now a five foot high and, or, probably four and a half foot high and two foot wide door, which greatly limits access to the church, but that's that was the point of it. So you go through the door of humility, which, of course, you should be humble going to the place of Christ's birth anyways. As we come into a wide open church, it's actually a bit remarkable to see a basilica-style church with an apse at one end and uh, a row of rows of columns down the, down the middle. No pews, of course, because that's a later Protestant invention, so churches here don't have pews, uh, just a large open space in the middle. And so in that middle was um, some sort of Greek Orthodox epiphany rite happening. Um, You know, their calendar isn't the same as the Roman calendar, so they were just now celebrating epiphany this particular Sunday morning, which it was, we discovered later, it was just a, a blessing of epiphany water, though it was a good 45 minutes of chanting and prayers and blessings, which is pretty beautiful that they do that much sort of liturgical work just to bless some water. Obviously, it's very significant, right? Um, Sometimes we could use a bit of a lesson in that, that there are wholly important things happening in our liturgical activities, and 
it's worth doing doing it well, doing it big, doing it special. So we watched that for a little bit as we were getting in line to go into the place of the nativity, um, admiring the mosaics that are still found on some of the walls that, that again, were not destroyed. Um, looking at the original floor, well, looking at where it is, well, the floor, so obvious where it is, but there's the current floor, but then underneath some wooden panels in certain spots is the original floor remarkably undisturbed. Most of these old churches, it's been kind of trashed over the centuries and sunken and broken and what have you, but the original floor was protected and so is actually pretty immediately available. wasn't available for us to see, but I think they open on a certain day so you can see it. It is fascinating that that it does exist there. Also some neat things that are in there. Um, On the, the, the massive stone columns, there are painted saints on the upper half of the columns. They're, they're dingy with age because I'm sure they're innumerable centuries old probably. But um, they're saints painted on the columns, which is a beautiful theological image that the holiness of the saints is what supports the church. Right? That the saints are, um, well, Christ is the foundation, but saints are the walls, the, the living stones of Christ who hold up the church and uh, give us this place to worship. Eventually, we did get through uh, the line, past the many icons of very beautiful images and candles burning, all that sorts of things, and down into the cave of the Nativity, the cave where Jesus Christ was born. You know, when we think of in the West, you know, America, except the Nativity scene, we think of you know a little wooden shed. They didn't have that because there aren't trees in Bethlehem. You have caves; that's where everyone lives, and you know that's what homes are made of. You you live in the in the rocky hillsides because the rocks here are really soft and they wear down. So, you know, there are caves all over the place. It's actually in a cave, and there's a, there's a big silver star on the floor that marks the place where Christ was born, and then a few feet away is the place where uh, the manger where he was laid. And these are, these are places that have been remembered since the early centuries of where these things happened. So we're, we're relatively certain that this is the place where those things happened. So we go in, um, of course, venerated the spot, uh, touched uh, things like rosaries and other holy holy things to that place uh, to make them into uh, third-class relics, and then, um, of course, proceeded out the other side after a moment of prayer. In the church next door, we hoped to visit the cave of St. Jerome, uh, where he spent 30 years translating the, the Bible into Latin. Unfortunately, on Sundays it's locked because it's because it was during Mass. They were having Sunday Mass, you know, remarkable. So we weren't able to go into that, but we did, I did stop and pray for a moment to St. Jerome uh, for some of his scholarly wisdom. Though I can never be as smart as him, perhaps his intercession can give me a little bit more um, focus and motivation for the intellectual activities. Fascinatingly, uh, Jerome's cave... Fascinatingly, but not surprisingly, uh, Jerome's cave is actually connected uh, via a series of smaller tunnels to the Church of the Nativity and to the Nativity Cave, uh, though, of course, it was locked on both ends. Um, but, you know, what an idea to be, you know, St. Jerome working in one cave and to have literally down the hallway the place where Jesus was born. Who gets that? Well, St. Jerome and nobody else. You know, what, what a special and holy situation to be doing your life's work in. After that, we went to the place called the Shepherd's Field. Basically, it's the place where the shepherds were when, remember, the choirs of angels appeared to them on Christmas announcing the birth of the Savior, saying, go to Bethlehem and see him. That's where they were. So we had Mass there, very lovely. I offered my Mass 
for this day was offered pro uh, popolo for the people. So uh, Mass today was for all of you in Weatherford, Hinton, and Thomas. Um, I do that every Sunday. Every every weekend, one of my Sunday Masses is offered for the people. So even though I was over here in the Holy Land, I offered this particular Sunday Mass for all of the people, for all of you all. After uh, going to the Shepherd's Fields, uh, well, we had lunch in between before that, but uh, went to Shepherd's Field and went to Shibli Kondo's, uh, more than a gift shop. Uh, it's quite, quite, a, quite a store. He actually specializes in uh, antiquities. He's one of the few licensed antiquities dealers in Israel. So uh, his grandfather helped discover the Dead Sea Scrolls. In fact, was instrumental in that. Uh, and then he still sells um, authorized um, I guess you, antiquities with the there we go, certificate of certificate of authenticity. So none, none of that museum of the Bible illicitly stolen out of the country stuff that happened with the Green family. He does things the right way, has full authorization to sell them properly, and he has you know his his family was the first to have what you might call a souvenir shop. Um, so I don't know, maybe it's sort of his fault when you go to holy places and there's shops of rosaries and junk like that. Um, but he has he has those things, but also he has a much nicer olive wood carved things and other pieces of art that you don't find in those uh, other sillier stores who are just trying to, you know, pawn junk onto tourists. So uh, if you ever are in Bethlehem, make sure you go to Kondos, K-A-N-D-O-S. That is a, it is a, a gift shop, perhaps you might call it, but one uh, far above the quality and range that you might find at really any other store. You know, he has things like a massive nativity scene carved out of the entire trunk of an olive tree, like literally, you know, several feet high, several feet wide, who knows how many thousands of dollars it costs, but you know, with 65 different figures and a whole setup and arrangement, beautiful. Um, so he has things like that, plus the little, you know, three inch high Mary statues carved out of olive wood too. And, um, he was very, very generous to his priests. Um, you know, I, he helped me out with some purchases of things, if you will. So, a very lovely store, and the man is very holy, loves the church, and uh, a lot of what he does, a lot of his profits even, go to support local Christian families. So, it's not just making money for himself, but he is a great champion of, honestly, the, the oppressed Christians of the Holy Land. So, on the way back from Shibley's there with, with uh, some new holy items in hand, or new items that could be holy, at least, uh, some of us did have the bus drop us off for one last jaunt into the Holy Sepulcher, to the oldest, to the, not the oldest, to uh, the Holy Old Church, if you will, to go pray at the tomb of Christ and the, and the, uh, up on Calvary one last time. Of course, there's lots of lines, so I couldn't get into the tomb, and I did, just barely before it closed, get to pray at Calvary once again, or, you know, immediately touch the place. But I did um, touch the rosaries I bought and, and the other holy images uh, to that place as I was able. And uh, then prayed my intentions there uh, with the ones I hadn't finished that morning at the Nativity Grotto. As well as um, just prayed evening prayer. Um, got yelled at by a Greek priest, which is always fun. You know, I feel like I could sort of accomplished, you know, I could leave in peace now that that had happened. Uh, they're very, very stern. And what's closing time, damn it, it's closing time. And you get, no matter what you're doing, you get scolded, told to get out. Because, you know, it is a bit odd that they're so harsh. 
But on the other hand, tourists to this holy place, if you don't make them leave, they'll never leave. So, you know, I kind of give them a, a bit of a pass. When we get back, when we got back to the hotel after that, we had dinner with all the priests again, and it was a very lovely conversation. Um, it's always so good to see people together, not just shooting the breeze about random stuff, but actually having serious discussions, um, talking about sort of the struggles we all face with, um, especially modernism and relativism, where you know, basically anything goes except morality, and you're allowed to claim anything you want and insist that, it's, insist that it must be that way. Truth be damned. You know, there's so little consideration anymore for what is actually good, true, and beautiful. But if it's what you want and it's what, you know, some psychologist thought up, then it's what we have to force everyone to do. And the church, as is no surprise, comes at odds with a lot of those things. So it was good to hear brother priests kind of wrestling with that and not just asking how do we fight this, but literally turning to, okay, we have to trust in the gospel. We have to trust in the Lord to get us through this. You know, we have to be evangelizing and uh, teaching and living the kerygma, which is reminding people explicitly that Jesus died for their sins, and that's why we do all that we do. Without Jesus dying on the cross and his resurrection, his forgiveness of our sins, it's all meaningless. But once you know that the Lord has forgiven your sins and he loves you very much, then that makes all the difference. So in case you didn't know, Jesus loves you very much and died for your sins, and that makes all the difference. And that that's what the Mass is about, that's what the sacraments are about, are giving and showing that love so that we can, and for us to receive it. So in case you ever wondered why you're Catholic, what we're doing that for, the whole point is that Jesus loves you and he's showing you his love and help, and hoping that you receive it. And the sacraments and the church are the way that we, that we receive that love. So that's the conclusion of today. Um, a whole, what, 10 minutes shorter than the previous days. Um, it's been good to be here in the Holy Land. I hope I can record tomorrow and tell you about that. Um, but in case not, it has been very good to be here. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, if you ever get a chance to go on pilgrimage, uh, it is a very blessed opportunity. Uh, don't worry about danger over here. And this whole time, even though the pol- political stuff has, I'm sure, been a mess, regardless with Iran and what have you, never once ever, ever have I felt unsafe, uh, things are calm, peaceful, life goes on like normal, you know, the danger was nowhere near us, and nobody around here seemed concerned, um, I assure you, it is a very safe, perfectly fine place to be, um, you know, if you're from the U.S., it'll be a different culture, but that's true anywhere you go, right, um, it's not like going to Europe, it is a bit different, but, perfectly safe, a delightful time, never once felt unsafe in the slightest. So if you have a chance to go to the Holy Land or, you know, anywhere on pilgrimage, it is a fantastic and really enriching spiritual experience where you'll encounter things that you never would get at home. So do take that opportunity if you are able. Um, It's a great place to pray and to receive the prayers of others. So thank you for listening. God bless and hopefully I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Okay, wait, I'm back, period. I went to look at my or pictures to post to Facebook and found ones from the Milk Grotto that I, f- I totally forgot we went there. It wasn't on the notes, or maybe I just passed it. Anyways, so we went to this place called the Milk Grotto, which we went to last year, so you may have heard of it already. But it's a place where, traditionally, Mary and Joseph were staying, perhaps the place where the wise men came to visit them. 
where uh, Mary was breastfeeding and a drop of milk fell and turned the whole place, all the stone there, uh, white, whiter than usual at least. And so it has become a place of pilgrimage. I mean, A, because Mary and Joseph and Jesus were there, uh, but also specifically uh, for those hoping to conceive or those, you know, with maybe difficulties or not even difficulties, just uh, desiring family life. You know, for obvious reasons, the Holy Family was there and it's this, you know, with breastfeeding, it's a symbol of uh, the nurturing uh, of family life. So a very beautiful little, of course, a cave, lots of caves around here. And so uh, full of images, uh, many of which are uh, ones you may not see very often of Mary breastfeeding, which is a good thing to see. Uh, Our culture has, for whatever reason, this weird hang up about breastfeeding. Uh, Oh, no, it's not like it's, you know, a woman exposing herself for everyone to look at on purpose. It's not like she's showing off. Uh, It's taking care of her baby. It's not a big deal. Uh, And so it's beautiful to see this place. Uh, you know, to, to say, hey, you know, Mary did this. It's not a problem. Really, we shouldn't be scared of it. Uh, so I posted a couple of the pictures uh, of some of the images of Mary breastfeeding Jesus. Uh, a, they're beautiful, but also uh, to reinforce the point that there's nothing wrong with that. And in fact, it's quite wonderful. Also, of course, no offense if it doesn't work for you and your baby. Not a problem. Not judging. Uh, but we shouldn't be afraid of it. So, you know, especially in a certain sense, because Mary did it, Jesus did it, and that's a pretty good reason to do something. So anyways, uh, in this place, uh, it is traditional to uh, both uh, come in rejoicing for, but also to ask for uh, help with conception or, you know, pregnancy issues. So uh, know those of you who have asked me for prayers in that particular area, uh, certainly know of my prayers there. Um, even if you didn't ask me for prayers in that, uh, some of you I prayed for anyways, uh, because, you know, I can do that. Uh, but, of course, you know, it's all according to God's will, not my will, not not even yours in a certain sense. So, uh, but family life, pregnancy, difficult, but also uh, very beautiful and important. So, uh, know of my prayers for those that asked for it, and even for those that didn't, uh, that you all be happy, holy, Uh, fruitful and joyful families. Okay, now that's actually it. Good night. Talk to you later. Bye.